You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Deuteronomy 5.20 Welcome to Epigraphs. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. You, If you're listening very closely, you'll notice that we've had to change our title from epigraph to epigraphs, plural, uh, as the, we've actually started to post these online. We found out that Someone on RSS took our name, so... But it hasn't posted in the episodes. But it hasn't posted in the episodes. lame. It's what I would call an epigraphic fail. <laughs> um, well, for, for this evening, we're going to discuss a poem by the American poet Richard Wilbur. Um, the poem is entitled Lying. It can be found online at the Poetry Foundation. So if you are not familiar with the poem, I highly recommend uh, going and reading through it at least once. We uh, we think that it's worth spending some time with. That's why we're talking about it. We're, so. we're going to spend even more time with it. <laughs> um, so have a, have a look at it, and then um, hopefully from there, this will be helpful and, and, and enlightening. So, uh, so Michael, I think you and I... No, I think you introduced me to this poem, but I was immediately struck with it, and you know, not every poem sticks with me. This one certainly had. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was it that initially attracted you to to this poem this poem was it something that you had to like to had to cover in a class is this something you came across in private reading i first read this for a literature class my first year of college it was my freshman english major like 16th to 20th century english language literature class so broad overview um mostly i don't remember what we read in this class in that class but <laughs> we read this and i I loved it. I immediately went to the library, actually, and got a book of Richard Wilbur poetry. But um, there's there's an immediacy about the way that Richard Wilbur writes and a freshness of of vision that I found really entrancing, almost combined with a addiction and a metrical commitment that really fits with what I just enjoy in poetry. Mm. Well, this one's certainly dense and I've read a little bit of his other poetry. And again, it, it is fair. It, you know, he, he packs a lot in, but this one is, I mean, it's just like absolutely replete with image after image after image. Um, it almost, I, I actually, part of the reason I wanted to do this because I just read it to uh, a couple of friends of mine, one of whom is, been writing a lot of poetry and we're, we're talking about the, so the need for specificity and concreteness in, in it, it maybe not in, intrinsically in good poetry, but certainly as you're right, learning to write good poetry. Uh-huh. And so I brought this up as an example of, um, of something that really just drills down on, on seeing, which is kind of what the poem is about too. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, 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 the thing, the, the thing that stuck in my mind, I think the first time you read this to me would have been five, seven years ago. The particular image of the of the onion skin um, on the on the counter uh, has just well, and it's interesting. Onions, onions to me have actually held a pretty similar role to what he seems to be doing in this poem, and we can get into that. But uh, I remember one time at the Labrie Institute, there was a, we did this thing was, it was an exercise called get to know your onion where you basically slowly prepared an onion for dinner at the same time as trying to pay. (laughs) That would make me so sad. Yes. Really sensitive to onions. (laughs) Yes. It it was an emotional experience. 
Uh, but you, you notice all kinds of things, like the fact that the inside of a, of a white onion skin, if you take it off and it's intact, is, is like opalescent. It looks like, um, like a translucent mother of pearl. Mm-hmm. And, and those two things kind of fused in my mind together um, into, into one very you know, powerful image of sort of uh, what hidden, hidden everyday beauty Mm-hmm. Um, these things that we that we kind of look past. So why don't you why don't you give me what you think this poem is about? And I'm I'm I'll be interested to see how much we line up. What this poem is about? Okay. You're the also welcome to question what? if that's a legitimate question. You can uh, yeah yeah, but we'll go with what I think you mean, <laughs> <laughs> with the caveat that you know if you could say what the poem was about then there wouldn't really be any point in writing the poem you would just say the things that it's about um, or you know it might take a book to uh, yeah. say what's done in you know in 50 lines but you know i loved this poem for a long time honestly before i really had much of a sense of what was going on in it before i'd really mm. thought it through what attracted but, it to yeah what attracted you to it at that point the 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 imagery and the emphasis on seeing and seeing in a new way actually giving attention to things mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. but that is not i think what the poem is about i think it really is crucial that wilbur entitled it lying which takes us away i think from what I would maybe have thought the poem was initially about. I think that the the general gist of it is that there is this gap between what we say and what we see and between what we see and what's there. But it's not a hopeless gap. Mm, okay. The things are there for us to perceive. Yeah. And when we perceive them rightly and truly that in itself is a kind of making but it's not it's not like a creation ex nihilo right yeah. it is yeah. it is that we are perceiving something that is really there and our vision of that is something that like forms in that moment and that we then bear witness to so it's interesting because when you when you when you say that it reminds me a lot of Gerard Manley Hopkins' sort of poetic philosophy. <laughs> what, are, <laughs> what are you laughing? Is it because I always bring up Gerard Manley Hopkins? Yes, and okay. I find it almost incomprehensible. But <laughs> well, well, my one defense, my my, I have multiple defenses. My strongest defense, actually, in this case, is the phrase "small wonder," because I'm pretty sure he's quoting Gerard Manley Hopkins there in. Um, uh, is it, it's either in small wonder of it. Small wonder. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. 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 He says, um, let's see here. Strange and total eclipse. I have certainly never caught a Hopkins quote. Yeah. The, so, so right before he starts talking about, um, the black little uh, creepy, small wonder that yes. Pretending not to be. Yes. Okay. Uh, there's Hopkins uses small, um, small wonder of it. Blue bleak embers fall, gall themselves and gash cold vermilion. I believe that's at the end of, um, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. No, not that one. Uh, sorry, the Windhover. That's at the end of the Windhover. Um, any rate, I, I, there, 
There's sort there of are certainly some resonances. There's some Grover resonances there. Yeah, and 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 with that resonance in mind, seeing that strange phrase of small wonder, I don't know. I'd I'd be interested how much you know he he's. It doesn't strike me as a particularly strange phrase, but Hopkins does have that same kind of attention to and like rapid. Rapid fire imagery yes. in a lot of yes. his poems. Yeah, exactly. That invites us to look at these things in the world anew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, well, and and this is going to probably take a little bit of time to pick apart. But you're, it, it sounds like you're presenting this as, you're, you're, you see this as Richard Wilbur, um, sort of embedding our actual perceptive process in a poem. Simultane- but he's simultaneously, the poem is an image of the perceptive process as well as sort of an explanation, or as, as well as an unraveling of it. Is that, is that what I'm getting? Because in one, he's not flat out, he's not saying outright, obviously, what you just said about how we mm-hmm. approach the world. He wants that, it seems like he wants, and, I, and I, that, that seems similar to what, what I've read, what I, what I read in it as well. Um... It, it seems like it's doing two things at once. One, it's calling our attention to the way that we see the world. Mm-hmm. And two, it's also a sort of microcosm of it. Does that make sense? For one thing, the poem is something else that we come across in the mm-hmm. world. And so the thing that we do to all of these things that, he see, that we see in the poem, we're also doing with the poem itself. And so it seems to call attention to that as well. Sure, but I don't think it's meant to be quite that meta. But I, I okay. think that it okay. is... It is true that he is he's calling attention to a process by by which he describes the world by almost describing that process. So, you know, one of the one of the really key lines mm, of the mm-hmm. poem I think is odd that a thing is most itself when likened. And so yes, absolutely. he's he's drawing attention to our use of simile when we try to describe things accurately and using that then to point back to a truth about the world that comes out in the way that we talk about it, which is that there are these underlying yes. connections. Yes. So there's the word. So, so in, in the same way that you'd say odd a thing is most like itself when compared to another thing. Well, the word word. I mean, that's kind of what words are. They're a comparison. The poem itself is the poem itself is sort of that adjacent thing to reality. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what I'm trying to get at. Not so much that there's sort of this like meta analysis, but that like, that he recognizes that the poem is participating in that whole process. Mm-hmm. That's what I, but in that sense, it feels again, like it feels very, <laughs> this immediately strikes me. Maybe that's why I like it so much. It strikes me as being very similar to sort of Jordan Hopkins approach to poetry as well. This sort of intense attention to reality that is living next to the awareness that that, attention creates something that is not the same thing as the thing itself. Mm-hmm. But that, that that's not, certainly not a hopeless thing. I mean, Hopkins is writing that out of, out of, I think the sort of this linguistic milieu, this sort of linguist and philosophical milieu that said something along the lines of either words mean, words mean exactly what they mean, in which case they can't have any bearing to reality, or they don't mean what they're talking about, in which case, how can there be any connection? Mm-hmm. And how can you and I be have any assurance that we mean the same thing? You know, you clearly have a different idea of to take C.S. Lewis's you know example, London. So when I say London and you say London, how is there any real communication? 
And Hopkins, Hopkins basically says, look, there's, there's, there's enough commonality, mm-hmm. which is, I, I think commonality that, that idea of commonality as a, as an approach to truth is, seems to be very much at, at the heart of this. Well, why do you think it's called lying if it's about trying to tell the truth and seeing things as they are? Well, okay. So you, you talked about Hopkins milieu. Mm-hmm. Wilbur, I think, is operating more coming, hopefully, out of the place that T.S. Eliot describes when he... What's, what's mm-hmm, the line? Mm-hmm. Words slip, slide, break. Under the stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so, and so there's this breakdown of faith, I think, in communication, not exactly in the way that you were talking about with Hopkins, yeah, but more like the inadequacy of language itself, not so much the inadequacy of our internal pictures of things. Yes, yeah. And I think that Wilbur is really interested in the way that we can recognize that language is inadequate. So there is a sense in which we're lying, and we can lie intentionally, we can bear false witness to something. We can say that we've seen a grackle when, in fact, we haven't of late. Yeah. But by the end of the poem, he has worked his way around to this situation where we we look at the great lies told with the eyes half shut that have the truth in view. And these similes that talk about one thing as another. So... It is not that thing. And yet, there's this hopefulness of the fact that we are actually still communicating using those things. We, in fact, I think he's saying, can communicate better about some things when we talk about them in ways that are, are slant. Mm. So there's, mm-hmm. there's an Emily Dickinson poem that I love um, where she says, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success and circuit lies. Interesting. And I think that okay. that's a yeah. lot of yeah. what Wilbur is talking about here. So do you, do you think that he is, do you think there are two kinds of lying going on in this poem? Because you have, I mean, the arch fiend, the arch fiend is running through it and he's, right, he's called, what is he called? He, the arch a, negator. The arch negator. Right. Do you think that he's making a differentiation between the sort of thing and, and, and he, he makes very interesting use of Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost as well. Mm-hmm. This sort of this sort of father of lies who is in such a state that you know, even Eden is a prison. Right. You know, the, the, that great monologue, you know, I bring hell with me myself. I'm hell. That seems to be the sort of opposing vision to this other one that he's bringing out. It, it, do you think it's almost a play on... He's making something of a play on words by calling simile lying? Does that... If, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So, the as I read Wilbur, the great hope for him as we live in this world is in the givenness of the world. The reason yes. okay, that we can't great. communicate yeah. is because the world is given. Hmm. And it's important that Satan is the arch negator because what he wants to do is say this world is not given. He wants to change it from what it is. And Wilbur denies that we can do that. You know, I, 
I've sort of gone through different lines in this poem being my favorite lines, but mm-hmm. currently my mm-hmm. favorite lines are, <laughs> um, and so with that most rare conception, nothing. What is it after all but something missed? It is the water of a dried up well gone to assail the cliffs of Labrador. And so when we see that something, quote, isn't there. Yeah. It's not missing in the sense of us being able to somehow negate the givenness and I think the goodness of the world. Mm. It's because it's somewhere else and we've missed it. Mm. Yeah, I mean that I mean that's worthy of, you know, pretty profound uh you know, mystical sort of mystical in the in the kind of technical sense faith in, you know, this sort of a Jillian of Norwich kind of, you know, an all shall be well mm-hmm. kind of of statement about things. Yeah, I, I well, I do it with do with it what you will. Again, I think of Hopkins saying saying when he is viewing in his this is in his, one of his journals I think or or in a, in, a, in a letter he says that that in this sort of his most let's say clear eyed view of reality I think he says that he he says nothing seems more pregnant than a simple is and yes mm-hmm. which correspond to his much more obscure ideas of instress and inscape and instress inscape being that which is and instress being the affirmation the willed affirmation of the of the unity of things mm-hmm. which in in some sense i actually think that while it's more obscure to me the the idea of the of instress is actually more helpful these days the idea that sort of in that the fragment you know you move from at least this is the way that i could sort of construct the this is ted's you know post-World War II intellectual trajectory, you know, which is that you have sort of T.S. Eliot. You have been alive since post-World no, War II. No, it's my reading of it. It's my <laughs> reading of it. You have you have T.S. Eliot with a wasteland, right, where he says, you know, I, I shore up these fragments against my ruin. There's you know, just, I've sort of like tried to pull this stuff together that feels meaningful That's to me. And early Eliot. Early Eliot, right. And then... You know, and and plenty of people escape this trajectory, but as a whole, there's a sort of fracturing that goes on at world uh, in the post-war era that then sort of develops more into postmodernism, which says there never really was anything to put together, mm-hmm. right? This stuff was all floating around there, and and uh, Hopkins and again and and maybe I'm going to broaden it. I just I just like Hopkins' language. I'm going to broaden this. I think this is really kind of what poetry is about. So here we go. <laughs> which is about saying the universe Ted's theory of, of, of poetry and its role in the universe well it's to look at it you know it, it's to look at in some sense it's to be able to look at the multiplicity of experience and to both say yes is it is right these things are you know multiplicitous can be viewed in many ways there's a sort of there's a sort of well, you could look at it as being betrayed by appearances and not being able to put things together because everything looks different all the time. Or you could see it, I think, in the way that Wilbur does, in this sort of joyful splendor of the fact that things are always revealing themselves differently. Mm-hmm. But that that's that's one part of it. But the other part of it is is an actual an actually an affirmation that it is that it is um that you can reach it in some way. That's the yes. You know, you're saying yes, this is all you know, there's a thousand ways to look at a cat bird, but a cat bird is, and I can look and I can, I can have some real relation to the cat bird or to the onion, 
Well, I think Wilbur would go actually much further than that in, okay. the, in this poem. It's not that these things are multifaceted and just, you know, revealing themselves to us some ways. But but two things, I think, in particular. He would say these things are always there, ready to reveal themselves to us, if we would just pay attention to it. Yes. And yeah. not only that, there is a splendor of their similarity. That he calls it a cognate splendor. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say it in this poem, but would, I believe, trace that back to God. Yeah, yeah. Well, and... And, and we have a... Hmm. We have a duty to pay attention to those things. And then to bear witness to them rightly, and there's a line in there somewhere where we are permitted to use simile and and talk in figures of speech and reflect particular views of things. But somewhere you cross that line between talking about a grackle that you haven't actually seen... Yeah. Well, that trans- and the, into negation, that, that which is where I is, think you start that, to bear false witness. That transition is is in his words, forgetting out of what cognate splendor all things came to take their scattering names. Mm-hmm. You know, and so where do you? There's that movement out of. You know, and there's that movement out of um, right rejoicing in that. The it's the unity and multiplicity, right? It's how do you? It's I mean, it's it's sort of, sort of one of those like fundamental tensions of reality, let's say that, that things are different and they're also the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's an extraordinarily strong case to be made that Trinitarian theology is the only actual resolution to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Because, because what, what else do you do? You either say at some point you end up in the sort of monism of the one in which everything disappears into that oneness, or it's all, or there's multiplicity in the top and there's no unity. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, which of the two is it? You know, is it all going to dissolve into, into incoherence or is it all going to um, come together into annihilation? And, and people make comments about that in terms of, you know, these ideas of the afterlife and the sophistication of the, of, of the Christian doctrine of eternity and, and theosis or deification, you know, whatever, this participation in God – and I think that's right, but I don't think just in terms of the eternity of the human soul. I think in terms of intelligibility, the very intelligibility of the experience of everyday life, that it has to, if you really push on it, there has to be some resolution to how, how is it, how is it permittable to compare one thing to another? Mm-hmm. And why does that comparison actually reveal the things? Why is that comparison true? Yes, exactly. And I, th- and I, I mean... I've never, I've never sort of put these two things so closely together, but I think if I sat there, you know, we could talk out all the chain. I don't, I think that has to lead you to the Trinity in the end. A, a, an affirmation that there is three and one and one and three, and that they, there's not, neither of those is dominant. I mean, that it's, you know, the, a mystery in the sense of a Christian mystery. And that if you don't have that, then well, then you can't be sane. 
in the sense of being able to look at the world and, and have a relationship with it. I'd be very hesitant to say that it has to lead you to the Trinity. But I, I would go so far as to say it's a reflection of the Trinity. Sort of in the yes, way that, yeah, that yeah. you know, Sayers uses the Trinity in her uh, The Mind of the Maker as an analogy, or rather, there we are with analogies again. Yes. <laughs> she says that the creative process maps on in these ways. We see that reflecting the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. In the world. Yeah. I do, yeah, I don't, I don't mean that you have to have this sort of conscious... Obviously, you don't have to have that conscious aspect of special revelation to be able to have a meaningful relationship with the world. But I do think that if you... I think that the, if you, the degree to which you take it seriously, Wilbur's point seriously, you will, it, will, it will point you in that direction. It will point you in the direction of realizing that somehow at the top, all of it has, you have to, you have, to have m- the multiplicity and the unity come together in some way. Maybe there's another way to bring them together, but I just don't think humanity has thought of it, you know, mm-hmm. in, you know, the 6,000 years of thinking that we've, you know, have some record of, which is, <laughs> which is something. Um, what do you, well, I, I'm not quite sure what to do with this. Okay. But he, when he's talking about this cognate splendor, there, there's a complication. So you're talking about the complexity of the world mm-hmm. and he calls it the garden where we first mislaid simplicity of wish and will. So what is it, where does simplicity fit into that? If simplicity is the way it was in the garden. Right. Well, I would, I mean, look at, look at the simplicity has nothing to do with, it's not simplicity of sight and it's not simplicity of thought. No, it's it's wish and will. Wish and will, which this is, you know, I was just talking about this with a friend earlier today. We were talking about, so he's a, he's a, a, he's a doctor and he was saying how, and, and you'll, I think you'll see pretty quickly where I'm going with this. He, he talked about how people, he sees frustration or anger in people when there isn't medicine that they can take to fix a problem. Mm-hmm. He says, it doesn't matter if I have recommendations about how they could change their lifestyle in order to deal with this, this malady in their life. There needs to be this thing to take mm-hmm. that then fixes it. And so I was... I was saying, it seems to me that this breaks, that this comes down to that sort of, fu- that fundamental distinction between science and religion and magic and technique. Because he brought it up as this sort of embrace, this sort of belief in technique. There should be this, we're doing something wrong if I can't take the pill that makes me not be anxious, makes me lose weight, that makes me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Because I shouldn't have to change. And so you say, okay, well, that, what and C.S. Lewis makes this. I, I got this from from Lewis, and I think it's in one of his essays in God in the Dock. What religion, tech, religion, and science are about the are about confirming conforming the human person to reality. Science mm-hmm. fundamentally is the mind to natural reality, and religion the the whole person to supernatural reality. Whereas magic and technique, and we could we could quibble on that, but it is it is conforming the self to what is. Whereas technique and magic are an attempt to conform what is to oneself. I think all of this poem is a commendation to conform yourself to what is. 
Exactly. And so that is why I think you can have a simplicity of wish and of will, right? Mm-hmm. What do you wish for? Well, you wish for what is. And what do you will? You will what would that what is would be. Because in the end, what else could you... And, um, Wendell Berry has an interesting poem. I think it's his, maybe his third one in um, his his Sabbath poems, where he says, you know, where the only new thing could be pain. He talks about the, the, the state of the garden as the only new desire could be the desire for pain. Um, and so I, that's why I, I think that's, and that, that to me accords really strongly with the idea of the beatific vision, which is that God is, at least as I've heard it articulated in, in Thomistic thought, which is that it is, you no longer have a conception of God. You know, you don't have a, the idea of God in your, in your, in your intellect. God is in your intellect. And so there's this degree of sort of supreme simplicity that comes out of all of that multiplicity. And what else could you wish for? Your entire, our entire existence in, in beatitude is going to be one yes. But it's infinite. It's an infinite yes. Absolutely. I compl- and I think that's what he said. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I love that. I, I missed that in the readings that I've done. Um, so thank you for calling my attention to that. That's wonderful. I, I really, I think that's what he's saying. You have this cognate splendor, which is interesting when you think about all the various sort of etymologies of cognate there uh, in terms of it being something of, of, the, of awareness as well as similitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this because when 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 you're in a state of bl- of blessing of blessedness, what else? It's like what else could you want, right? There's this perfect so, unity of will. I mean, this okay, is what so, Christ says: the so pureness of right. Blessed are the pure is, in heart. This is so awesome. Okay. So there, I mean, this this whole idea, which I've I've never gotten out of this poem before, that there's this unity of will, and when we are rightly directed, mm-hmm. there's ultimate simplicity inside us. That allows us to enjoy and appreciate and glory in the ultimate variety outside us. Yes. Ow, that's good. Yes. Okay, so that that's okay, that. and, and the ultimate variety is meant to be there. Yes, absolutely. Wilbur, that's that's part Wilbur of it. It leaves, has to be. He leaves evil out of the picture. Out of the picture of what's right, out of that that glorious variety in a couple different ways. First, he talks about Satan as the arch negator. Mm-hmm. So he wants to take things away from us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he also says, he asks, what, though for pain there is no other word, finds pleasure in the cruelest simile. So oh. pain hmm. has no cognate it's outside of this connected picture of our given world i mean i immediately want to think about this in terms of the crucifixion but i'm completely overwhelmed by trying to figure that out (laughs) so maybe in six months we can come back to it um well i think i mean in in terms of all of this i'm I'm looking again at the lines in the middle about about the arch fiend he talks about he well there's so much here hope what galled the arch negator sprung from hell to probe with intellectual sight the cells and heavens of a given world. And that's just a beautiful line. You know, this sort of, he's encompassing the entire scale of the universe, mm-hmm. the cells and heavens, which he could take, but as another prison, you know, there's Milton again. Thank you. Small wonder that pretending not to be, he drifted through the bar like bowls of Eden. 
in a black mist low creeping, dragging down and darkening with moody self-absorption. What if he left it lifted and if seen from the sun's vantage, seething with vaulting hues? It's that darkening with moody self-absorption is essentially sort of, that's the moral struggle, right? Are you, because, because one, another way to frame that question that I was saying, are you going to conform yourself to reality or are you going to, or are you going to conform, try to seek to conform reality to yourself is to say, are you going to center things around you? Is it all in reference to yourself? That's that. And, mm-hmm. and the moody self-absorption in the end can turn you nothing to nothing but a low, a creeping low black mist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, which, it's Lewis's insubstantial hell in the great divorce. Things disappear into and absolutely. And that's, I think why this poem is called lying and why there's this emphasis on, on communicating about what we've seen. So when we see things, it ought to come back out of us in a, in a way it reflects off of us. And when yes. we reflect it rightly, then we're not lying. We're bearing true witness. Well, and in that sense, you, so then when you, when you start thinking about, I mean, that, that image of reflecting, you know, that's, I haven't traced it any further back than Dante, but his image of heaven is uh, that all of the souls are polished mirrors of charity. And so what do they do? They, they just bounce God's love back and forth to each other. Okay, but I would trace that back at least to Moses who comes out shining with the glory of God. Oh, no, not the idea of God's love being a, a visible splendor or anything like that, but the, I, well, okay, so let me, let, me, let me get to why I think that Dante's poetic description is different. Because it presents the souls in, in paradise as adding to the splendor being an adornment to it. So rather than, yes, they reflect God's splendor, there's a sense of the more souls there are there, the more it's bounced around, right? It's like this room and you keep adding mirrors in and it's, you know, how many crystals, you know, do you hang in the chandelier kind of a thing? So it's not, it doesn't conflict with those things. I think it's, and I think it's an extraordinarily biblical image. It, you know, very much in line with how the Bible talks about the glory of God, but to the point being, well, twofold. One, yes, when that, reality bounces off us when it hits us it shouldn't be absorbed into that black mist like you're saying things shouldn't disappear into us they should they should bounce off of us and in wilbur's case bounce off in the form of written poetry mm-hmm. although i think you could say the whole human endeavor is for it to bounce off of us in beautiful homes and in well well-raised children and in good art and in music and in singing and in you know gardens and you know and on and on and on but the other thing is, is that we're not eyeballs, right? We have bodies. And so not only, so we're not just meant to see the world. We're also part of it. So if we are also part of the cognate splendor, what are we cognates of? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's exciting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so... That's that first, this is part of the glory of it, that we're supposed to, when we, when we look at the world and we say, yes, when we have that singleness of wish and of will, that we, that we are also that other that we're supposed to look at, even to ourselves, and that we can, we can be that simile to other people, and we can wish for our own existence, that, that there's a vision of it in which we don't, and I think this is, 
this is really worth hearing. Now we're we're like <laughs> we're so far from being the thing that that ruins the glorious multiplicity of the world. We're so far from that. We do have a different position in it, though. At our best. Sorry, let me say at our best. Okay. Because because you can't do but, away with sin. But no, even so, I mean... The image we have here of this, the cells and heavens of a given world, which he could take but as another prison, and, and Satan drags them down and darkens them with moody self-absorption... What, when he left it, lifted, and if seen from the sun's vantage, seethed with vaulting hues. You just read that. There's this picture of those things being acted on. Mm. They get dragged down, and they lift back up. We have a different kind of agency. Yes. And we're, we're called to respond to it rightly, and we can respond to it wrongly. We can look at things according to our means and purposes. And if those means yes. and purposes are yes. wrong, then we go down the wrong path. Well, we end up lying. Well, isn't that... I mean, those means and purposes are the, the will and the wish. Mm-hmm. And that... Yeah. I... I uh, yes, I, I, I mean, I do love, I do love the, at the beginning, the idea that at the punch bowl, you would later be haunted by the phantom wings of the, the false crackle mm-hmm. that you've invoked. And, yeah, and that's, and that's part of it in that, you know, well, right. St. James says, you know, the man who can bridle his tongue is a righteous man, right? Is that, am I, is that in the epistle of St. James? Uh, I the man think who that's can, right. The man who but, can control his own tongue is righteous in every way. There's probably the man who goes and looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. Well, I think yes, <laughs> both of those. In in one sense, they're both. You know, that that that's in the same. Interesting. Yeah, that's in the, even in the same letter. But he's you know the and I, I see that you're looking that up for me. Thank you. So when, when well, you get the, the, Thank me once you once I find it. <laughs> but that idea that there is a not only is truth speaking um, part of the moral life, but that to regulate what you say that you're that what you say would be in accordance with the divine logos is in some sense the entire moral struggle itself, mm-hmm. the whole struggle for righteousness. For we all stumble in many ways. This is James. Three, two. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's that's great. And that's the same one where he goes on to describe the, the wicked tongue, where he says, you know, you know, we've bridled horses and we've done, you know, we could control a ship, but like who is can you know, who has controlled the tongue of man? It's you know, it 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 brings people down and itself is set on fire by hell. And like the that the lying tongue is well, because that's the again, Richard Wilbur here is 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 I think ta- tapping into that very deep and mature Christian notion of evil as being not as having a positive existence, but as as being a sort of an anti pattern or a nonness rather than having some sort of positive being and lying, not in the sense of telling a simile to say this is like this or this is this in order that you reveal that cognate splendor, but lying in the sense of, well, why, I mean, what, what does he present as lying? Why, why would you lie? Because you feel awkward or because, you know, 
it 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 it's it, it brings you forward in that situation because it's, you're at a dull party because you're at a dull party and you can't you don't want to suffer right a dead party actually is what he says <laughs> that's right which is even more excellent because you yeah. say okay well where exactly is this dead party and you say maybe it's all of life is all of life the dead party mm-hmm. are you always going to have the temptation to speak of false crackles and the answer i think is yes and like and they will they will haunt you with their phantom wings do you want to explain the last like six lines to me about roland <laughs> <laughs> oh, i was hoping you wouldn't go there because um I do. I have never read the Song of Roland. Okay. I barely know the story. Uh, well, to, can I just say so, to to Wilbur's credit no, that but, it, that it can. It's one of those the endings of the of of a poem. Actually, like the four quartets with T. S. Eliot. The first time I read it, where I had no conscious understanding of what was being said, and it was still bringing me to tears. I know. I feel the same way about it. Okay, but what I. I am sure is going on here is that he's bringing out this this cognateness again in a new way because he's talking about the dove that hatched the dovetailed world and so mm. he's paralleling yes the holy spirit yes and creation yes and I think giving us the most explicit hint in the poem so far of what this cognateness is really all about yes which i would also add that i this is another place where he either is accidentally or subconsciously or consciously um echoing hopkins because in the world is charged with the grandeur of god he says because the holy ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe bright wings and this the dove hatching the dovetailed world that image ending the poem again with the dove the holy spirit is like incubating creation sort of mm-hmm. brooding cre- over creation and hatching it into its existence. Part of the reason that it, um, mm, I, yeah, I, his, 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 I mean, his just, his, everything he has is so dense. It's so wonderful. Well, to just I know. Take and then one and line that it, it was faithful unto death. And so, you know, there's that call to be faithful to this, this glory to Charles as king and to the dove that hatched the dovetailed world yes. and shamed the devil, who we know from earlier in the poem is the arch negator. Yes. And in this death of Roland, for the sake of the things that he is rightly loyal to. Yes. Properly ordered and, and loyal to. He shames the devil. I'm... I'm going to I'm going to say that I think there's an even there's another meaning to what's said there. I'm because sure there is. well sure. <laughs> let me let me let me let me give you another one that really struck me because you said it was faithful unto death and and the and the main the main meaning of that and the standard meaning is he remained faithful to God and to God and king until he died. But if the whole project of the poem is to say that is the is the isn't yes. Right? That we're going to live in conformity to what lies before us. And he hasn't shied away from broken things. I mean, there's that wonderful image of the thing. He's in the animal, the the thing in the barn yard that's either mm-hmm. a tarp that's, and I just, I mean, I love that. Even the phrase hip shot beast is just, oh, that's <laughs> so good. You know, he, so he hasn't shied away from, you know, some images that are harder. And so, Faithful unto death, I think, yes, to, 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 to be ordered rightly, to not live in lies even when it means spilling your blood. 
But I think there's another meaning of it, which is to accept even your death, to be faithful even to the death that God is going to give you, because that too is part of this whole project. I'm not quite sure I followed the distinction you're making. Okay, well, okay, so faith, so faithful unto death in the sense of oh, oh, you're saying that yes, death is part of the, the pattern. F- death is part of the pattern. You have okay. to even be faithful to the death that you're given, not until, but your faith, your your loyalty to what is extends even to the death that's going to come for you. Well, this much I do know of Roland's story. Roland okay. actually basically brings his death on himself because he. A little gruesome, actually. Bring it on. <laughs> he, he's attacked in the rear guard, and he blows his horn for Charlemagne, and he blows it and blows it and blows it until basically like his head explodes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's something to that. Yeah, but I haven't read the poem. I just read the synopsis. So you might. I I wonder if, as as a poet, Wilbur feels a little bit of, if you'll excuse me, consanguinity with Roland. I mean, that's a little bit right. I don't know. Isn't isn't that? I mean, not not so gruesomely, but like, isn't there something of the poem in that? That like of the poet in that to to hold up the rear guard and. You know, if you're in the back and you're being attacked, it doesn't look like you're going to be victorious. I was talking about this with a friend of mine and the, just discussing these, the idea of a route and how horrifying a route was in, in, in ancient warfare. And to be the last person in the route meant one that you were going, if anyone was going to die, you're going to be the one that dies. But it also means that you're the one who waited the longest. Mm. And, and so to be that person who's in the rear guard and and yet to to be blowing the horn at the same time you know this this that uh, yeah right death is going to come and you're going to blow the horn of 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 truth and goodness as an act of as an act of faith and and you see their witness as itself an act of preservation when you talk about these things it is a way in which you preserve them mm. and you exercise I, I'm sure I've told you about Alan Jacobs talking about the Gandalf option sort of like as a playable, <laughs> a playable no, response I don't to the think Benedict, so. Well, I did immediately, as soon as you said that I immediately thought of uh, live not by lies so anyway okay, yeah so it's it's uh, a little bit of a tongue in cheek I think way of saying Benedict options got problems, but to to suggest this as an alternative, but then I think he started taking it a little more seriously, but where he's taking it from is Gandalf's speech to Denethor, where he says um, that the, I used to have this memorized, the rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small, but um, all good things that may perish, basically. For I, too, am a steward. For I, too, am a steward. And so, if anything comes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit or blossom again in days to come, I shall not wholly have failed in my task. Mm. For I, too, am a steward. Did Mm. you not know? And when we witness to those things, we steward them. 
we bear them in mind and we give them attention. Well, and this is to go back to our conversation about honeybees, mm-hmm. right? What persists? Which, when we we quoted this poem. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I really like how it, it's, all, it's all fitting together. But it it is, and that's to go back to the, the wish and the will, right? It is not, it is, a, it is far from a trivial task to determine what you're going to give your attention to. Indeed. It's a good place to stop. All right. Yeah. So go back. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to uh, uh, our, our talk on attention and honeybees. And first episode. First episode. Read some, read some poetry. Richard Wilbur's great. So is Gerard Milley Hopkins and many others. And um, yeah, persist in, in uh, appreciating and preserving. <laughs>